many of you could have identified where Bangladesh is? Yeah, not very many. Kids are smarter than you. Just thought I'd let you know that. <laughs> well, we are uh, spending the summer in the Psalms. We're looking into the Psalms as we would look into a mirror. And uh, when we look into a mirror, we learn things about ourselves. So we looked in Psalm 1 and we learned about how wonderful the law of God is. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Our God in a world that is so dark, our God spoke. He spoke into darkness and he told us things about himself. Psalm chapter 2, we looked at the king that he's put on the mountain, that he's installed, Jesus. We have a Messiah. Last week we looked in Psalm 5 and for those of you that were here, it's a lament psalm, and I invited you into my own story of uh, the death of my first wife and what I experienced through that and the, the pain and the, the road that the Lord took me on to, to establish and solidify my own faith through that process. And then uh, we looked at Psalm 5 after I shared my lament and looked at one of David's laments. And you may remember I told you, don't ever read the lament psalms as an academic exercise. Every lament psalm is someone inviting you into their journey to help you understand that you're not alone. We went from Psalm 5 last week to uh, Paul used Psalm 5 in Romans in, in the gospel. And that the gospel is the story of a lament. We are all hurting at some level. All of us have experienced some degree of pain somewhere in our lives or loneliness. And that's what the gospel is there for, is to bring good news to that brokenness. Today we're going to look at Psalm 8, a very different kind of psalm. It's a wisdom psalm. Now the wisdom literature, uh, sure, it, it's helping us understand how to live life wisely. But it's doing something a little deeper than that. The wisdom literature is asking questions about life that we can't figure out. It's presenting conundrums to us. How could these things possibly be? Why is it better to do this and to do that? Why does the wisdom literature tell us that it's better and more blessed and makes us happy to give than to receive, but the world tells us it's better to receive than to give? Accumulate, purchase, buy stuff. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. I do that. I enjoy it. But down underneath it, there's a principle that if we're not careful, we overlook. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Otherwise, it's just greed. So the wisdom literature begins to raise that question. How on earth does that happen? Why is that even possible? So today we're going to look at a conundrum, a question that the psalmist asks. But he begins, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8. You ever stop and ponder how majestic is the Lord? What does that even mean? Now, we're in a perfect setting to begin to ponder that question. I told a bunch of you, I've told you before, if I have a bad sermon, just start staring and daydreaming. And you know what? You'll be far better off than what I had to say anyway because the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Just take a look out there. Look at that. If we believe God made that, I do, how majestic is he? That's just a tiny, tiny snapshot of how majestic he might be. So that's the opening statement. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Now, this is all background to the question he's going to raise in just a moment. You have set your glory in the heavens. 
The word glory there is not the normal word for glory. We're going to see that one in just a minute. You could translate this. You put your beauty in the heavens. Why would he do that? Well, first of all, go back to verse 1. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, we serve the one true living God. Look at the very first word, Lord. And it's all caps. That means that it's, the, it's God's name. It's his divine name. Yahweh. You are our Lord, our master. You are so majestic, we don't even know how to compare it. You've put your beauty in all of creation for us to look at. The Bible is filled with language like that, that type of stuff. And then he says something very surprising. He takes a turn none of us expect. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe in the avenger. He brings in two contrasting ideas that we never put together. Praise of children and enemies and war, they go together. Picture this. You have the clash, a battle. You have enemies that are trying to hurt you. Uh, and back then, that was a very real problem. They had walled villages for protection and defense. And you have these enemies, and then lo and behold, you hear the sound of battle. You, you, you hear the groaning and the, the cussing and the swearing of men who are trying to take advantage of you. And then you hear over the top of that children beginning to sing. And that begins to drown out the horrors of a broken world. How many of you enjoyed seeing these children sitting here? It's nice, isn't it? It's nice. Some of you were here the first Sunday when we were in the amphitheater. We had kids sing. I don't know. We had 5,000 kids up here singing. It was one of the most beautiful, spectacular. I, I worshiped without ever opening my mouth just by listening to all these kids these children. And that's what he's talking about here. Through the praise of children and infants, you have a established a stronghold against your enemies. The praise of children gives us a picture of what God created us for. Not for warfare. Not for battle. Not for any of that. It's interesting that Christ used this verse in Matthew chapter 21. It's really wild because of who he's talking about. He had just cleansed the temple, Matthew 21. He had gone in there with his whips, you may remember, and turned over the money changers. Uh, Matthew 21, verse 23, Jesus entered the temple courts. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders um, came to him. Boy, I did that again. How did I do that? I might be getting old, Mark. Yeah, well, you know, that happens, right? Yeah. <laughs> Took you right to the wrong chapter. Well, he's, cleaning, he's cleansing the temple, and, um, and they come to him, and he begins to heal people, and they get really upset with him, the Pharisees and the scribes, because he did that. The reason why he cleansed the temple was because these, uh, these money changers had come into the court of the Gentiles, and they had filled that up so that they could make money. The problem is that the, that was the place where the Gentiles were allowed to come and worship. They couldn't enter into the temple proper. And so they had set this part of it aside so that for them. And they took their space. Now, what was the purpose of the temple? The purpose of the temple was simply to allow people to come to God. Solomon 
In his great prayer at the dedication of the temple, he prays and he says, Lord, when the foreigners hear of your great name, for they will hear of it, and they come to this wonderful temple where you reside, listen to them, answer their prayers. So then in Matthew 21, it is the right place, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. You have kept the Gentiles out. The very purpose of the temple was to bring them in, and you kept them out. So can you imagine the, the, the confusion, the noise of him? You know, one of the gospel tells he creates this whip, and he, he's driving all these people and turning the money changers' tables over, and there's money going everywhere and all of that sort of stuff. It's mayhem. It's chaos, right? Verse 15, the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. They were firsthand witnesses of, of the grace of God. And they were indignant. And so they asked him, do you hear what these children are saying? Look what you just did. And here he quotes Psalm 8. From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. The praise of these children is overshadowing the confusion in the den of the temple. And he just drove the money changers out. So this is a, it's a, we don't expect this. We expect the psalmist, when he starts talking about the majesty, to talk about all the great things that God has done. Look at all the great things down through history God has done, but he doesn't do that. What he does is he starts with, you made children. Children give us the truth. They reveal to us what this kingdom looks like. And it overshadows the noise of enemies and warfare and all of that. And then he says, when I consider your heavens, Psalm 8, 3, the work of your fingers. Now, my wife is a potter, a very good one. If you've been to my house, I always love to show off her stuff. I'm not a potter. I, I made one bowl. She had me make one bowl in my life. We used it as a doorstop. Okay? I'm not a potter. It's functional, heavy, ugly. It's a bit of work. But I watch her, and it's like magic. I watch her fingers make things out of a lump of clay. I'm a musician. But what I pay attention to is what's going on up here, how they can just move their fingers and create a different effect on a guitar or a keyboard. When you start talking about a person's fingers, you're talking about a very personal engagement. That's what you're talking about. That's where we do the fine work of making things. We pick up our children. We caress them with our fingers, don't we? We also change their diapers with our fingers. That's another sermon. When I consider your heaven, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, I, I picture him, he's, he's pondering this at nighttime. He doesn't mention the sun, and all he mentions is the moon and the stars. He's out there looking at the, the vast canopy of creation. Have you had a chance to do that since you've been in the county? Just look at the stars. When I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, and then here's the question. Now that we see all that, what about us? What about humanity? What about mankind that you are mindful of them 
Why would you be mindful of us, human beings, that you even care for them? He's asking one of the most perplexing questions that philosophers and theologians and people down through all the wisdom people have tried to address. Why us? Why do you even care for us? You made all of this. Why us? Why you? And I know that some of you are at a place in life where it's tough. I know that. Things are just not going the way you want it to go. And you've asked that question. I've asked it. Why us? Why me? Why did you do that? And then he gives us the answer in a very profound way. You have made them, that's us by the way, a little lower than the angels. The NIV says angels. It gives you an alternate translation in your footnotes. You've made us a little lower than God. It's the word Elohim, which we usually translate God. I think it's kind of a play on words, and I'll tell you why in just a little bit. You've made us, you made us, humans, a little lower than yourself, than God. There's a vast difference between the animals and the rest of creation and us and us to God. We are much closer to God than we are to the animals. The Bible argues that from beginning to end. You've made us just a little bit lower than you, and you've crowned us with glory and honor. As soon as he uses the word crown, we saw that back in Psalm 2. All of a sudden, we have something to do. We have responsibility. Because that's the idea behind crowning. You crown somebody for a purpose, don't you? So when we go back to Genesis 1, when you ask people, why did God make you? Why did he create you? I love to ask that question, especially in the classroom. You get all kinds of really wonderful answers to worship him and to, to do all those things. Well, that's true. We do worship him. But is that really the reason he made us? I mean, it kind of sounds a little weird if you ask me, uh, I'm going to get married and have four children so that they'll worship me. That sounds a little narcissistic, doesn't it? Listen to what the Bible says. Then God said, chapter 1, verse 26, Let us make mankind or humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and over all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. This is one of the things, one of the places where Christianity departs from every religion. We were made with dignity. You don't have to go through reincarnation to get better. We don't have to empty ourselves to find truth. We're not a light source that somehow gets out there and emerged with a bigger light source. No, from the very beginning, we're made in the image of God. We have dignity. That's unique among the religions. We have dignity. We have purpose. God made us to work. He just didn't make us to work under the curse. Every one of you loves to create things and make things and accomplish things. And that's what this is about. To rule over the fish of the sea, on and on and on. That's why he made us. So God created us in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He made us to be like him. He made us to be the closest thing the world can see to the one true God. This may reflect his glory, but it doesn't tell you anything about him. But when you see good marriages, for example, good friendships, when you see a healthy church, when you look at that, all of a sudden you begin to see pictures of who this one true God is. When you see a church that's caring for one another, you show grace when people sin. Every one of you sins, every one of you. Every one of you has sinned. Every one of you is going to sin again. And when you see grace, all of a sudden we capture a glimpse. 
When you see us coming alongside someone who's hurting, someone who's fallen, someone who's broken, maybe they lost their job. I don't know. You fill in the blank. And we come running because that's how important they are to us. When the world sees that, then they have a glimpse. They just have a picture. So you have made them a little lower than yourself, I think is the good translation. And we have crowned, he's crowned us with glory and honor. Here's the real word for glory. So we have majesty, we have beauty, and now he brings us into it. We have glory and we have honor. We're mirrors. We reflect all this to a broken world. There's no shortcuts. There's no banner up there. There's no sign with flashing lights about the glory of God. There's no airplane with a banner behind it. You've heard me say that. No, no, no. Paul sums it up in Ephesians 3. To God be the glory in the church. That's us. And it's right here. He crowned us with his glory and with his honor. We're the closest thing a broken world will ever find to the one true God. That's us. You made them rulers. He's talking about us. Over the works of your hands. I just read that in Genesis 1. Over the works of his hands, his fingers. We are the rulers, right? You put everything under their feet. And then he goes down to you. The flocks, the herds, the animals, of the, the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea that swim in the paths of the sea. He placed all that under our authority. That's why environmentalism, creation care, is so important to us as Christians. Don't let people steal it from us. It should be the very core of our theology. Why do I believe in creation care? Because God gave us this as a gift and told us to take care of it and serve it and love it and watch out for it and protect it. Protect those animals. Nancy and I have two dogs. They come and jump in my lap. They have no idea what they managed to escape in life. And that the fact that they ended up with us who care for them and love, they have no idea. What a privilege that is. Creation care should be a central tenet of what we believe. Because this is a gift from the Lord and there it is right there. You made us rulers over the works of your hands. He's answering the question. He's answering the question. What about us? Why us, God? You are the one that's majestic. You're the one that's beautiful. Why us? Because he wants us to have purpose. And that purpose is to reflect his glory to the world that can't see him very well. So the way we live our lives is absolutely critical. And then he closes, Lord, Lord, he repeats it. How majestic is your name in all the earth. What an incredible God that would do that for us. Isn't that incredible? Would make us that way. Now, when you turn to the New Testament, this psalm is used all over the place. I'm only going to look at one passage, and that's in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, this is a, a passage where he's, the church, probably, um, I think Jewish Christians are about to walk away. They had come to faith. They had heard about this Jesus. They didn't have the New Testament yet. It hadn't been written. This is being written to them. And the years are starting to go by, and they're watching their Jewish friends still take the animals down for a sacrifice and, and the memory is maybe a little distant that somebody had shared with them about Jesus, but he didn't come back. They didn't have a New Testament to explain to them what's going on like we do. And they're beginning to wander away. And so the author of Hebrews writes this wonderful book and says, let me tell you about who Jesus is. 
because I don't want you to turn away. So we've seen several of the Psalms already repeated. And here he brings up Psalm chapter 8, Hebrews 2, verse 5. It is not to the angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind? Who are they? Who are they to you? What is mankind that you are mindful of them, or the son of man that you care for him? That's a quote out of Psalm 8. You made them a little lower, and now here he does use the word angels. You made them a little lower than the angels. We're talking about our position, only for a little while. And Jesus took on that role. He stepped down into our place to discover what humanity really is like. How would he know? He came to experience it. You crowned them with glory and honor. You put everything under their feet. And then he says in verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it is fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation. Now listen to these words. This is Jesus. To make Jesus, the pioneer of their salvation, perfect through what he suffered. This is one of those conundrums. So we answer the question in Psalm 8 about us. Wow, he made us to represent him to a lost and broken world and to care for this world, his creation. But then in Psalm 8, he, he elevates it to a whole new level. Wait a minute, you're telling me Jesus had to be made perfect through what he suffered? How's that? I thought he already was perfect. The key to unlock that is found in the Old Testament. And it's the word, it has to do with the word perfect. You could put in there the word prepared and it would make sense to you. Don't think of it as moral perfection. You see, when the Old Testament priests, when they got ready to serve in the temple, they would go through a period of ritual cleansing. And at the end of that seven-day period, it said they were perfected. They were now prepared to step into the temple to serve as priests on behalf of the people of God. Same language used here. He made him perfect. In other words, his life prepared him to be our high priest. It's not because he was God. This is a statement about his humanity. He had to be prepared to become our high priest. That's why his life and temptations were so critical. So now he's taken this level, this question of what about humanity? What about us? Okay, we get it. You made us to glorify you to the world around us and to take care of this earth. But what about Jesus? And so the author uses that same psalm to answer another question. That is, Jesus had to go through life to be prepared to be a high priest. You with me so far? Here's the way they come together. That's why your life is important. Because at the end of Hebrews, later on, he says, talks about the saints who have been perfected for all of eternity. Same process Jesus went through is what you go through. Oh, he did it without sin. I'm not arguing that. We, we don't do that. We do it in a sinful way, but it's the same journey. So what is humanity? Oh, God, that you are mindful of them. God said, I made you to reflect my glory to a lost and broken world. 
And I'm going to use your life just like I did Jesus's. He becomes the example of what it means for God to perfect you day by day, step by step, so that you're able to fulfill that. That's what it means. That's what Psalm 8 is telling us. God, you made all this. Why us? I, I don't know why God chose to do it that way, but he did. We are the ones who reflect his glory to a world around us that can't quite understand it. We're the ones that care for the earth. We're the ones that care for animals. We're the ones that love those who don't yet know Christ, those that are hurting and broken. That's, that's the conundrum. That's the question he's answering. Why us? You have a purpose. Your purpose is to bring glory to the Lord. That's why all of those commands, all of them are important. I like to use the one, do not grumble and complain, because we're masters at that. We're so good at it. And you know what? When we grumble and complain, we have nothing to say to a world that only knows grumbling and complaining. It's when we don't grumble and complain that they look at us and they say, wow. Just for a second, they get a glimpse of this glory, this majestic God. Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you made us like him. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us the wisdom literature to help us answer questions we could never figure out on our own. Lord, I, in all honesty, I never would have thought about that it's better, it's more happy, blessed. It's wonderful, more wonderful to give than to receive. Because if I listen to the world around me, I just want to keep buying things. And yet, somewhere in the wisdom literature, you answer that question. And then here you answer the question about what about us? What is our purpose? Our purpose is to bring you glory. Help us, O oh God. Help us to do that. Help us to be quick to run to those who are broken and hurting, to those who sin, to those who choose the wrong paths, Lord, wrong to make bad decisions. Help us to be quick to run to them so that we model grace to the world around us, so that they capture a true picture of you, the one true God. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come take the offering. And I would just like to say a word to all you visitors, a special word of thanks to you. Our church hears me year, day, week in and week out. They get tired of me sometimes. You know, they know how much I love them. But to you visitors, just a special word of thanks. We couldn't do all this without you. We're only a church of about 230 people. What that means is that you as visitors, it's your generosity that makes it possible. Thank you for being generous.